Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And it's been a couple weeks. Um, luckily, um, most of the, or about half of the shit that I watched over the past two weeks um, is stuff that I can't talk about or, or by my own rules. I'm not under embargo on all this stuff. By my right, own rules, right. I can't talk about um because it's yeah. for other episodes or it's for work stuff or whatever. But um, and for the last week, I've uh, you'll hear more about you'll hear much more about this on the actual episode. But for the last yeah. week, I've been so sick that I've just been sleeping or uh, taking care of the kids. So I'm I have not seen very much. Well, I'm just going to jump right in then, since I have more okay. to to talk about. I'm going to talk about a documentary that I um, watched on uh, PBS or via the PBS uh, app. It's called North by Current. It's directed by Angelo Madsen Manax. Um, if that's how you say his name, I'm not sure. Uh, and it's an absolutely fascinating documentary about a family, about his family. Um, the 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 director is trans but that's not at least at first what the documentary is about the documentary is about him returning to his hometown and to his family because his he's not going because of this reason this happened earlier but he's his plan for the documentary is to make a documentary documenting the aftermath of his niece dying at uh, while still like basically a baby uh, uh, um, uh, he had a very small knee his sister's kid um, who who died and this has obviously had a big effect on on the family but what you start to realize as you're as he like inserts himself back into his family is that as tragic as that is the director's transition the director's coming out and transition is still maybe seems to be the most traumatic thing that has happened to this family the thing they're still mm-hmm. processing in 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 a way um and, uh and um part of that is because he like when he was when, when he was uh, like a teenager before he was out or before he realized what uh, what he was, he was obviously a very unhappy kid and was a terror. Hmm. <laughs> um, and, and, and so like he had a terrible effect on his family then, but then also they, there's a like a shocking moment where his parents talk about, because they're talking about their their granddaughter who died. But then they also start talking about, well, you know, we had another, a daughter who died. And you realize like, oh, they're talking about him, hmm. their son who's sitting right in front of them as if he died. It, it's it, it's to, to see this, this fallout is, I think to, often in, in art and in culture, we get two versions of the coming out story. 
either it seems like it's either we love and accept you whoever you are or yeah. it's you're cut off and you're out of the right. family right and i think there's probably a lot of middle ground that i think this this show this show this movie um wades into in which like there was never like this is a close family there was never any question that he was going to be ostracized from the family right but on the other hand that doesn't mean it's been a super easy thing for his family especially his parents his sister seems uh more cool with it because i mean you know i think just younger mm. people are maybe more uh uh aware of of, of this as a possibility um uh, it's but but i think north by current is Ultimately, it's a look at what keeps families together. And, and in this case, and maybe in a lot of cases, the things that a person or a family or a unit or a group of people say are the things that define them might not actually be. There's something deeper. You, you know, you can... Uh, you, you can... There, there are things that you can be, you can, the principles you can be malleable about. And there's like who you are as a person and as a family and as a, as a unit. And I think uh, North by current sort of in a very un like schematic or diagrammatic type of way, just sort of sits with this family. And, and like, you get the impression that Angelo Manax uh, is the kind of person who is a filmmaker because he always wants to look at everything through a camera. So yeah. like the fact that this is a movie that's only 86 minutes long or whatever is probably amazing because he probably has hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage because he's yeah. just the kind of guy who's like always filming his, his, his family and um, to, to, to shape something uh, out of that. You realize that like, this is another uh, argument that documentaries like film in general, documentaries are not just what you shoot they're made in the editing room oh yes um, yeah the uh academy doesn't seem to know that since they don't want to give the editing oscar uh live yeah um, yeah i think that yeah i'm done talking about north current now i'm saying and this i think this is the year i finally just don't watch the oscars I, i've been saying that i wouldn't would for for years and then like i guess it just seemed like fun or whatever but like or, or a tradition but now like i feel like well i literally feel like they don't want me to watch they're not they're they're not making a show for me so why would i be watching it yeah it's you know uh, for for years being you know being where i am on the on the political spectrum of course i've i've had to hear conservatives talk about how uh how irrelevant the oscars are becoming uh by you know, more openly incorporating like uh, political speeches or, or whatever, or just like the movies that are being nominated or are uh, more overtly political or not even political, but just like less uh, uh, sort of the mainstream films. Um, so I've been hearing that on, on one side and I, and I always, my argument was always like, well, I mean, admittedly, I do think that the Oscars are less they're less vital simply because they're less of an event because there are so many other types of events that are like that to say nothing in the internet itself, which allows you access to these celebrities all the time. 
And so it's not really that big of a deal anymore, but doing what they're doing now, it's like now that you, now you are making yourself less relevant to, in this case, the precise people that like the last people that would have found you relevant. Um, You know what I mean? Like if you want to alienate the, if you know, if you want to alienate people who just want to see like the, just the big uh, crowd pleasing movies, whatever, that's fine. Um, it not, not so much alienate, but like if, if you're, if you're fine to, to be like, no, you know what, we're going to, we're going to award uh, parasite, you know, um, then you, you run the risk of, of people being put off by that. But the, the, the diehards, the people that have a love of film history the, and, and certainly a love of film craft and they like the idea of a film being uh, singled out and, and honored in some way. Um, that's who you have. But rather than just acknowledge, I think you've said this, rather than just acknowledge that their, their audience is becoming more niche, rather than do that, they are sort of thumbing their nose at that audience in an, in an attempt. And it's a pretty wild attempt, in my opinion. Um, to to bring in other people by saying like oh well it'll be shorter and there are less categories that you don't know about uh and it's it's frustrating because most oscar ceremonies by will play up stuff like editing and production design they use the opportunity to sort of educate the audience about like how how vital a role this stuff is and now there's like well that's done we're gonna try and and just just go with all the big awards uh, and, and then we'll, and then that's it. Um, yeah. I, I am getting less and less interested in the awards ceremony for sure. I'm at this point, I'm just like, yeah, it I'm, if there's going to be like a funny bit or a good speech, I guess I'll see it the next day. Um, yeah. For the most part, I just want to know who wins. So I know what points I'm getting. Um, in, for, in our for our draft, awards. you know, yeah, uh, yeah, they are big, they are making themselves less relevant to anyone at this point. Sorry, well, that, um, I, that was longer than I expected. But I no, I'm, I'm the one who took us down that road. Um, I just needed uh, it, was it's clearly on my mind. Uh, but yeah, from one um, under the radar documentary to another, this one is, uh, excuse me, this one is directed by three people. And I just need to find out who they are. Damn it. Sometimes the way that Letterboxd... Uh... Yeah. Okay, here we are. All right. So uh, this is a documentary called Prism. P-R-I-S-M. Okay. Prism. Um, I have a... Uh, I don't know. Do you, do you have like the voice command thing on your TV? Um, yeah, I never use it, but we, yeah, oh, okay. we have it. Yeah, the first time I tried to like search for Prism, it was like, "You want to watch Prison Break?" Like, yeah. No. Prism, well, you know what? Maybe I do. Maybe I do. I'll, <laughs> Prism will have to wait. But then I hear, like, literally, I was like sitting there shouting at my TV, "Prism!" <laughs> <laughs> Very stupid. <laughs> uh, th- uh, three women directed this movie: uh, Rosina Mftego Mbakam, Anne Van Dernderen, and. Eleonore Yamiogo and the, there are sort of linking sections at the beginning and in between each segment of the movie in which these three women over like zoom or whatever uh, talk about the movie they're making but then the movie also has three distinct 
parts that each one of them uh, directed. But the impetus for the movie came from a short film that was directed by one of them, Anne Van Deer, Deren, 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 uh, who is the only white woman of the three, the other two are black women. And she made a documentary or like a non-narrative sort of film about um, the... Uh, I can't remember if it comes from Kodak or whatever, but do you know, like the, uh, they're called China girls. And it's like the, the, the image of a woman with like colors around her that is used to calibrate film. And she made Hmm. this short film about how China it's, there've been different China girls. I think, I think they come from Kodak from Hmm. like that too surprising, but they've been different China girls over the, over the years, but they're always white women. And the, so like, she was raising questions about like how much is the um we think I, I feel like this movie would be a good companion piece to uh all light everywhere which is another documentary about how we treat cameras as if they're something objective that they're just recording fact but there are decisions subconscious decisions cultural decisions yeah. going into them um uh that that affect the way we see things and and so this movie takes up that um even further to like the film itself is calibrated in such a way that it treats white skin as the base you know right. um uh and it's yeah um it's weird that i watched i watched this right after sh- shortly after you and I, I talked last week or i guess it's been two weeks since we did a movie journal about um Koganada's After Yang, which stars among other people, Jody Turner Smith, who's a very dark skinned woman, and there are shots in the movie in which the family is together, um, in which it's hard to make out uh the features of of her mm-hmm. face. Um and so it's weird that I just noticed that and then I watched this 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 documentary. But um Prism goes on from there. It's a very like uh, I think borders on being like a film essay type of thing because it, sure. it has a, um, uh, it, it has a, not necessarily a thesis statement, but it has a uh, uh, dialectical jumping jumping off point. Um, but it's also more open as opposed to just like it's an essay is telling you something. There is a little. There is more of a sense of let's find things out or let's question things uh in 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 this movie and i think it's very much a film for people who like us who watch and think about movies because uh it ends up you know the way that the different directors uh, the three of them run with the with the subject matter it ends up um questioning all 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 sorts of things and like getting beyond just um uh skin tone giving the idea of pointing a camera at something as a way of um exerting control over it in a way like it's the one film professor compares it to like colonization like taking Mm. taking ownership of something that isn't yours by pointing by recording it by pointing a camera at it um there's also like they talk about there's because they interview their own film like professors at the at the various film schools they go to um 
the professors start talking about the film themselves, you know, like one, uh, one, one, one professor is like, you see one of them being interviewed, like on his like lunch and smoke break. He's like a French professor. Um, and the other one is like complaining that he had to be interviewed in like his, the screening room at school where he's like, this isn't where I'd be right now. You're imposing this space on me. Um, and so it, it like, uh, it starts out being about, uh, about specifically about how film is um, calibrated in in regards to different skin tones, but uh, it uh, is more it expands to be more a movie that is um, uh, questioning the the uh, the power and responsibility of shooting things with a with a camera and presenting things through a lens. <laughs> really fascinating uh, movie. It's on the Ovid app. Uh, if you, if you I have not heard of it until right now, <laughs> uh, it has a lot of documentaries on it. Okay. Um, and um, it also I'm has a lot of Asian film. Pulling um, it up right now. Uh, and then finally, I watched a movie I've been meaning to watch for over 10 years. This is you and I have talked about this son of a gun. I just hit my funny bone on this table. Oh man. My arm's vibrating now. Uh, you and I have, talked about this for for years like sometimes there are movies that, that come out and you're like oh yeah i need to see that and then you look up and it's been in this case 11 yeah. years uh, um so i watched uh uh d reese's uh i don't know if it was her debut but the movie that made her name pariah from 2011 okay. um which is a coming of age story about a uh a new york city lesbian teenage uh girl um in a very uh i guess i don't know sounds directly to say a strict family but a a family who is very narrowly focused on like what their family is going to be it's we're watching this in comparison to north by current um uh in, in which they the family obviously struggles but is trying to uh adapt this is I feel like I found Pariah. Well, first off, uh, shot by Bradford Young, and he's fantastic. It's a it's a really good looking movie. Um, but I found it most most fascinating, less as a story of because I, I I do feel like the like gay coming of age story. Yeah, is there's we're not lacking for those. I think uh, right. Well, right. I sh- I say that, but like that's you and I being like in the know, you know, we, sure. like, we know where to find like these, these sorts of, of things. There, there may be not prior isn't exactly a mainstream movie. So maybe in the mainstream they're not, but um, uh, what I found most fascinating about prior was as a depiction of, uh, of, of parenthood and, but a not very, uh, not a very, uh, not an endorsement necessarily of the way these parents uh, uh, choose to raise their kids, but the idea of like there, I think this movie exists in the, the, that the, the, the sort of border between like a parent is allowed to tell their children what to do. That's what parents are allowed to do. But at a certain point you can't, you can you can't dictate who your children are right and i think that's where this very early by the way 
like, like, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's really amazing just to see, not that I'm looking to dictate who they are, but just seeing how early my kids personalities are developing and just recognizing like there, there's really not much I can do about that. Certainly behavior you can try to correct, but it's like, okay, Dash is, is like more sensitive, um, more clingy and more extroverted. And Jasper is more, uh, he tends to be more quiet and, he, and more uh, uh, curious about things, but not yeah. nearly as extroverted, not nearly as clingy. And yeah, it is, it's, it's fascinating how early that developed. And this idea that like, I, I do wonder, and this, look, I, I don't mean to suggest I'm father of the year or anything month, perhaps, but uh, you know, if you're looking in those terms, but, um, <clears throat> but I do wonder uh, about, about parents who have such a clear idea for who their kids. It's one of the things that bothers me about King Richard, as you know, uh, the, the movie is like, he has this plan. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I, I can't imagine planning for my kids, what they're, what they're going to do and who they're going to be and what they're going to be interested in tomorrow, much yeah. less their entire lives. I don't, I cannot picture how that's going to look. Uh, yeah, so I, anyway. I think that's, that's yeah. the struggle with, with Pariah. Um, but, uh, yeah, good movie. Uh, also, um, watching in the order that I did, so one of the characters, not the main character, but uh, um, uh, uh, a potential romantic uh, interest is played by an actress named Asha Davis, okay. whom I immediately recognized from um, a particular I Think You Should Leave sketch. Okay. Do you, do you remember the Blues Brothers sketch? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> so the girlfriend that he keeps like telling to turn up the thing and she gives him the like, fake thumbs up at the end or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so it, was, uh, it kind of took me out of it a little bit sure um, sure but maybe That'll that's happen. my problem for watching i think you should leave uh a few too many times it's it's like when you go back and watch what is it forbidden planet and you see leslie nielsen you're like i can't <laughs> yeah. take anything he's gonna say seriously yeah um okay uh yeah you're up that's three for, three for you okay so uh i watched a film that you have that you have seen i'm catching up slowly on my 2021 films, okay. uh, I watched Adam McKay's Don't Look Up. Okay. You know, I, I didn't care for it um, yeah. for the most part. Uh, but there were moments that, that worked for me with a cast this good. You're, you're going to, they will find those moments. Like even Vice, a movie that I mostly hated, still has some nice moments from the actors. Um and and maybe even an occasional like insightful moment from McKay, but uh, here it's and I and I'm I'm happy to talk about those moments because like like what you did like the negative is just such an assumption that I don't yeah. want to just I don't want to play into that. But uh, there are certain types of jokes in the movie that I found so lazy that it was, it was infuriating. Um, the kind of thing where like, there's a, there's a, a character, um, uh, a very uh, played by, I believe, is it uh, Ariana Grande? Um, and she's very vapid. Um, and, and she talks about a charity 
that she supports and it's like it's like save the manatee or something like that mm-hmm. or a manatee uh haven or something and i remember thinking like yeah that is a dumb fucking joke like that is you're you're meant to be like hey a, a manatee haven what a ridiculous charity it's like that and i and i say this with all like it is the kind of thing I would have written in high school. Right. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like no, it's absolutely. the kind of thing yeah. it feels, so, it feels clever, maybe not extremely clever, but it feels clever in the moment. They're like, Oh, what's, what's an animal that no one would ever, cha- you know, want to devote a charity to. Well, not only is it, is there one devoted to the manatee, but she's supporting it. It's stuff like that. There are. And then there's, there's one. I, by the way, manatees do get like, killed by motorboats and yes stuff. oh of course uh, oh i don't mean to yeah. suggest that i don't mean to suggest that manatees are are worthy of our scorn or anything like that yeah. <laughs> uh or our indifference but uh you can t- but that's not why he chose it you know what i mean yeah. um and similarly yeah. like there's a there's a scene where you know meryl streep as the as like this uh brassy kind of know nothing uh president um she's standing in front of a, a tank that says flammable and you see her light up a cigarette i'm like motherfucker like are you are you even how clever do you think you're being because i think you think you're being very clever here and so it's it it's jokes like that that really frustrate me because i know he can do so much better but that's the thing is is i've, I've looked at some reviews of, of this film and they say like hey this is this movie's meant to just be like a, a a shotgun blast it's meant to be like an explosion it's meant to be broad like you know, you can't be looking for, for like subtleties. Like I'm not looking for subtlety. I'm looking for precision. All right. Dr. Strangelove, which is a film this clearly wants to be Dr. Strangelove is not subtle. Certainly the character isn't, but crazy ass, uh, Sterling Hayden is not subtle. Not, there's nothing subtle about that movie. It's very precise though. You know, uh, and there's broad, but there's also broad humor. And even that is, is very precise and thought out here. It really does feel like a lot of the joke jokes um, are like, he had a thought, maybe had a little chuckle to himself. And that chuckle was for him proof that it belongs in the film. And that just really bothered me, especially because there are moments of genuine power the the scene at the end around the dinner table that whole scene worked for me uh nice. as far as these characters and and i think dicaprio finds some nice like there are scenes he makes funny purely through the force of his of his uh performance and well when they're getting at the beginning, when they're getting flown to DC and yeah. he, it's just him and Jennifer Lawrence on that enormous cargo plane. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. where, is there a seating protocol? <laughs> and, that's and a, you yeah, are, that's funny. and you, you are a hundred percent right. Other people have mentioned it. Paul Guilfoyle <laughs> as the general yeah. <laughs> with the snacks is. Yeah. And what I like about it is like, there are two layers to that joke. Number one is the idea that a white house general Let's say that the snacks actually do cost something that he's charging them. Like he's not just going to take care of it himself. You know what I mean? (laughs) That in itself is like, okay, he's cheap. That that's kind of funny. And it's like, oh, it's even beyond that. So moments like that, that's the kind of the, the timing of it, the performance of it. 
that's the kind of precision that I'm talking about that Adam McKay is capable of, but has not demanded of himself in a while. And certainly not in, in this movie, but there is, there's good in here. It's just, it's, it's a very sloppy movie in my opinion. Um, I want to point out one, uh, one other, I feel like way too many people have been focused as far as um, Timothy Chalamet goes on the uh, very calling attention to itself line about fingerling potatoes yes uh that's the one that people uh have have mentioned but he has a much funnier line earlier in the movie the first time he meets jennifer lawrence um and it's going to require me to say a word that i normally wouldn't say but he says he's like wouldn't be hanging out behind the burrow king so come hang out or whatever if you're not a total fucking pussy (laughs) (laughs) yeah there are funny moments in the movie yeah absolutely uh, all right, let's move on to now. This this will be out of the blue to our non-patrons. Okay, Patreon listeners know that I've been watching Veronica Mars for the first time. So I finished all three initial seasons of Veronica Mars, and we talk about those on the Patreon TV Journal. But this next thing, Tyler, it's a movie, so it goes on the Movie Journal. Sure. So I watched 2014's Veronica Mars, directed by Rob Thomas. Um, the 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 Kickstartered uh, uh, movie, um, and non patrons right now they have no idea what you're bringing into this. You know, <laughs> yeah, they don't know how I felt about yeah uh, Veronica Mars. Obviously, I liked it enough to stick with it and watch watch the movie. Sure, uh, I mean it's clearly it's it's a movie made for Veronica Mars fans. Um, it does have a standalone story that I feel like the 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 central mystery or mysteries of the plot would be understandable to anyone, whether they watch the show or not, but all of the color of the thing comes from the characters relationships and, and, and past. And, you know, there, are, um, you know, when Kristen Ritter shows up, if you don't know the show, you're going to be like, Oh, cool. Kristen Ritter's in this. And you're not going to be like, Oh, she was the daughter of the guy who did whatever in season two. Yeah. Anyway, like, uh, so it's a, it feels like it's obviously a Kickstarter funded movie. It is made for the fans as a fan. Now I found myself uh, enjoying it. Um, and it's also enjoyable that he, cause Rob Thomas after Veronica Mars made um, party down. Okay. Um, in which he brought people like Ken Marino and, and Ryan Hansen who had been on Veronica Mars mm-hmm. onto, onto party down. Now they're back on this show and, or in this movie, but also Martin Starr plays a role uh, nice. in Veronica Mars movie. So he's like borrowing people from uh, his other part, going back and forth. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a fun movie. I also like, again, patrons will know what I'm talking about when I say, uh, as far as the love triangle aspect of the show, I am very invested in one of the two uh, potential pairings for Veronica Mars. And I will say, this was a good movie for me to watch on Valentine's day. That's when I watched it All right. because uh, things, things broke my way. But if you want <laughs> to hear how I feel about the Hulu miniseries that came out in 2019, the eight episode miniseries, you'll have to subscribe to the Patreon because that's TV. I'll talk about that on the TV journal, which we do on the Patreon, patreon.com slash battleship potential. Well done. Okay. So that's Veronica Mars. Uh, next up. So I watched, like I said, I watched Pariah. I'd seen Mudbound. Okay. So then I went ahead and watched the other um, D. Reese movie that I hadn't seen, 2020's The Last Thing He Wanted, 
which look, Tyler, you and I are too smart to put too much stock in a, in a, in a tomato meter rating. Sure. Or whatever. But sometimes it is helpful just to get a sense of what the consensus is among the mainstream critics or whatever. So I don't know if you want to look it up or if you want me to just tell you. Well, so I, I will say that because uh, I, I don't go searching for what you're doing on Letterboxd, but I do occasionally notice it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I saw your 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 star rating on this film, a film that I knew nothing about. And I, and I was like, I don't know anything about this movie. So I pulled it up on Letterboxd, not Rotten Tomatoes. So I looked at other people's comments. Um, they weren't positive. Which oh, leads has, me to believe that it has a low RT rating. 5%. 5%. That's really that something. Is very low. It's very and low. And also, it's wrong. I'm mad at people. Okay. This is a good movie. It's There's things to complain about uh, about it. Like uh, it's, it's based on a, a John Didion novel, Anne Hathaway plays. It takes place in the mid-80s, and then Anne Hathaway plays a political reporter who's reporting on like illegal arms trades in 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 uh central america um and then when her dad the uh, woman defoe gets sick she she has to clean up things for him and ends up finding herself involved in the trading and sale of illegal arms that's the very thing that she was covering so suddenly now she's trying to cover the story from the inside um so it's like a somewhat uh political thriller type of, of, of movie. Um, Anne Hathaway is doing the like hard bitten, but still idealistic reporter thing a little okay. too on the nose like that. If that's going to be your complaint, her performance, I get it. As the movie went on, I, you know, it's something, it reminds me of something my dad, when my dad was my little league coach, he would say about um, like umpires behind the plate umpires. You know, like I complain, like, I can't believe you called that a strike. That was clearly outside. And my dad would say, like, yes, but he's been calling it that the entire game as right. long as he's consistent. And so that's sometimes how I feel about when people complain about accents or just like big choices from an actor. It's like, well, if they're committed to it enough, it can work. And so I, I will admit that at the beginning of the movie with like in Hathaway's voiceover, I was like, Oh boy, this is going to be a bumpy ride. But I like got into her wavelength into the movie's wavelength. The other bigger complaint that I see about the last thing he wanted is that as a twisty turny, uh, political thriller, it is so convoluted and so underexplained that by the end, it, you don't really know who's happening. I feel like, Jerry Seinfeld and that bit about how bad he is at following movies. Like, why'd they kill him? I thought <laughs> yeah, he was, I thought him. he was with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and again, if that's all you want out of the movie, yeah, you're going to be disappointed. But the, the tone and the cadence and the level of like cool and kind of like weirdness of her being in this, uh, getting deeper and deeper into this, under realm that she thought she knew but uh uh is now still trying to be her confident self but is finding herself more and more uh underwater uh with this thing it's the movie it cast a spell on me i was enchanted by it and it worked and i fully admit i have no fucking idea 
what happened at the end or why they killed that person because I thought that they were with them or whatever. I <laughs> I I fully admit, but it was still I still thought the movie was like cool and weird. And um I don't know as far as D Reese goes, I'm not sure that I wouldn't say I like it better than Mudbound. Mudbound is still my favorite. Um but uh I mean I guess I'm in the minority. I liked the last thing he wanted. And I I remember this was on it the last Sundance that I was at 2020 um is where it premiered and it was on my like long list of things to maybe check out and i and i didn't and uh i almost i probably saw something better because like i said it's not a perfect movie or anything but i almost wish that i had seen it so i could have been proselytizing for it from the beginning uh, as opposed to now like two years later being like oh that movie that everyone hated for a second and then literally forgot about yeah uh I'm, I, I just I can't really sound the bullhorn for it now. I'll have to check it out. It sounds it sounds interesting at least. Yeah, it is, and it's on Netflix. Um, and it's got a, it's got a great cast other than um, and it's got Anne Hathaway and and Willem Dafoe as I mentioned, but it also has Rosie Perez and Ben Affleck and and Toby Jones. Hmm. Um, I feel like I'm oh Mel Rodriguez is in it. I forgot about that. Can't go wrong uh, with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a fun movie. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, Priceline. All right. Uh, lastly, I'll talk about a movie that is not my cup of tea. Um, okay. It's called. And I, I double checked to make sure I wasn't under, under embargo because it hasn't come out yet, but it premiered at Berlin and there's already reviews. Um, it's directed by Graham Moore. It's called The Outfit. Oh. Um, and. Uh, I assumed, and I was correct, that the outfit, the term, refers mm-hmm. to a criminal organization. But yeah. also, it's a, it's a double entendre. I was because, supposed to see this movie next week, but they canceled my screening. Oh. Um, I wonder if it's because it's bad. Um, <laughs> no, you know what? I'm going to be in the minority in this one. I think the, when this movie finds its audience, which is like... It's not to be mean, but like middle school and high school like budding film fans sure. you know like this movie is like it's going to be some people's like usual suspects to some extent like because right. it's like this very clever cool twisty turny like puzzle box of a movie in which like yeah. at the end you're like oh you had it figured out all along or whatever yeah. like it's got that kind of thing um and it's got look it's got music by alexander Desplat. um Cinematography by Dick Pope. Um, fashion designer Zach Posen was involved in the costumes. Mm-hmm. And a movie, you're going to make a movie that takes place at a almost like entirely within a Savile Row trained tailor's shop in Chicago in the late 40s, early 50s. Um, you need to have good men's clothing, and the movie definitely connects on that level. The clothes are great in in the movie, but uh, yeah, basically. Um, without getting too because it's a very twisted turning plot i could 
I could spend all night describing it. But Mark Rylance plays um, a tailor in Chicago who has a relationship with the local like um, Irish mob boss played by Simon Russell Beale, um, in which he. It reminded me. Did you ever see the drop? The no, I didn't. Uh, James Gandolfini. So that's a similar thing where like James Gandolfini owns owns a bar, but he lets the local organized crime like use his bar as like drop point for like messages or money or things like that. And so like his tailor shop is a tailor shop, but it's also a place that hoods and thugs are always coming in and out of and doing secret business in the back back room. Yeah. And then one night a bunch of shit goes sideways, and he finds himself caught in the middle of uh, a sort of slow burn standoff uh, all night. And I just, it, it's, it's got good scenes in it. Um, uh, Dylan O'Brien, who um, I think played Scorch in the Maze Runner. Yep. <laughs> um, he plays Scorch Runner. Scorch Runner. Uh, who's okay. the king of the mazes. Right. Um, which is a tribe of warriors. Uh, he's the, um, He's essentially the like um uh Daniel Craig in order to role. He's like the okay. uh hotshot son of Simon right. Russell Beals, um, you know, and then uh Johnny Flynn is another gangster, Zoe Deutsch is uh is is in it. It's, you've got good individual scenes between good actors. Yeah. But I but but overall the movie just is so sure that it's clever and that it's gonna like blow your wig back uh with every new new turn that i uh i kind of started to feel some disdain for it felt like it was kind of wasting some some really good uh performances it's too bad i was actually i was i was bummed that they uh that they canceled that screening because i had seen a trailer for the film i was like oh this has this pushes a lot of buttons for me yeah um but uh, yeah, I could also see it getting uh, a little too into itself as well. Yeah. Uh, that's too bad. Uh, okay, so my next film is another movie that I know you've seen, and this one I also know you like, and that is uh, Joaquin Trier's The Worst Person in the World. All right. Um, uh, film nominated for multiple BPs, uh, and I guess a couple Oscars, but whatever. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Oscar who? Academy Ex- what? <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know them. But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It is a film that has stayed with me. I saw it uh, at this point uh, well over a week ago. And, uh, and there are certain sequences and certain uh, scenes and sometimes even individual lines of dialogue that have stayed with me. And certainly performances. Um, uh, our, our lead, uh, Renate, how do you say her last name? Do you know? I don't know. Rein, uh, Reinsva. Uh, she's really great. And she has a, that is a hard part to play because at the core of this is somebody who is, and we've all known somebody like this. And in fact, we have all been this at some point. And then for some people, maybe it hangs on longer um, and it's not necessarily a flaw, which is somebody who just pursues multiple paths and isn't really feeling any one of them for any length of time. Uh, and so they look very undecisive, uh, indecisive, pardon me. And 
So she, you know, jumps from one major to another, uh, jumps from re- one relationship to another, one career path to another um, in her in her 20s. And, you know, doing that can actually, you know, especially when it's a relationship thing can actually hurt people. Uh, and so I think the film, the film does a great job of showing that, yes, it can hurt people. And but that doesn't necessarily make her callous because she also knows that this is going to hurt someone that I do care about. Uh, But I also I feel like this is what needs to happen. Um, And that is a hard character to play because while remaining charming and likable and all of these things, like it'd be easy to play that too much and then be a little bit indifferent to the potential hurt that you're causing somebody else. But it's also, it's also a lot easier to play that beat too much and play the characters just perpetually self-hating. She is neither one. And I think she really rides that line uh, from one scene to the next. And I, I think it's a really impressive performance. Uh, also, maybe even more so, uh, Anders Danielson, is it lie? I don't know. Or, or Lee, I'm not sure. But uh, boy, he is marvelous. Just marvelous. Um, I was not ready for the, some of the stuff that they were going to give him to do. And it's so impactful because this is a guy who is... He's an artist. He can be a little bit moody, but he also actually seems to crave some level of, of stability in life. He's a little bit older than our lead character. So he is at that point in his life, not merely that he may want children or whatever it is, but that he just wants some level of stability. Um, and he is an intelligent person who's pretty tuned into how he feels and you can kind of trust what he, how he perceives the world and you can trust what he says, but it, that doesn't make him a perfect person. And you can also see how being with that person um, could be frustrating, maybe even a bit stifling. And all of that comes through in his performance as well. And so, and I feel bad talking only about the performances. There are several other good performances as well, but it is a character film, I think, first and foremost, and really getting you into the 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 headspace of our lead character. So much so that you know there are there are sequences that are that are sort of fantasy sequences that are purely inside her own head, um, and I think those are beautifully realized. It is a very funny movie, a very poignant movie that really captures what what life is, especially at that very specific time in your life, a time that you and I were in, you know, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I remember it's like, you know, you see 30 approaching, you're like, okay, I really need to start figuring out what the fuck I'm doing at, at that arbitrary point. And it, there's just this pressure that you feel, you know, it, it's interesting. The movie came out the same year as tick, tick, boom. Uh, and in both cases, you have somebody who's just like, eh, doing what I'm doing is not super sustainable after 30, I think. Um, and I feel like it really captures that feeling of instability and that frustration, but also still that level of exhilaration with, uh, with being able to, to still take different paths. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I really, I think it's a, a beautifully realized film. 
Uh, it's also you for reasons we'll talk about on the the, the next episode. Episode you weren't on the last episode. The needle drops, right? Um, yeah. Worst person. Sean and I did our top five needle drops of twenty twenty one. Worst person in the world was the only movie that was on both of our lists that we oh. picked two different songs. Oh, oh. but uh, yeah, listeners, I guess already know that. Uh, assuming they listen in order, I don't know. I guess you could listen to things sure. out of order. Just bounce around. Why not? Uh, all right, let's. Uh, I'll move on to a cute, very low budget uh, new indie movie. I I uh, watched the digital screener of. It's called The Second Age of Aquarius. Okay. Now this, if the outfit was a movie that is technically very proficient, but kind of empty, kind of hollow. This is kind of the opposite. This is clearly shot very cheap. It's like you know, flat, you know, video looking. Um, uh, uh, one you know, tiny location, um, but it has charm to spare, and I think more thought than would initially be uh, uh, apparent. So it's a, um, I guess it's, I'm kind of like repeating the like uh, ad copy here, but it's sort of a uh, sci-fi rock and roll sex comedy about a um uh, a woman this is like some alternate version of the future where she's building essentially like a hologram type of thing of this famous rocker who died in 1970 named russell aquarius and there's through some sort of you know weird science type shenanigans he actually comes to life in her apartment um but uh he she it turns out is agoraphobic and he can't go too far from like the laptop that is his like energy source essentially so it's a movie about two people stuck in an apartment um but it weird like it made me think it, it's a weird weirdly like a companion piece to last night in soho because it's also a movie about a young woman who idealizes a version of the past and like longs to commune with that and then comes face to face with it and realizes not in as terrifying a way as happens in last night in Soho, but realizes maybe I'm not compatible with, with this. And, and, but like I said, it's a sex comedy. There's a lot of fun and there's a lot of the two main actors, you know, rolling around in bed and on couches and their underwear. Um, uh, and they're very, both very charming uh, actors. Their uh, names are Christina Jacqueline Kalf and Michael Ursu are the, uh, the the two actors but it it's a a a a cute movie that is also about um making amends with the fact that like you can enjoy the culture of the past but that doesn't mean that it's better or even desirable to live that way in the present second age of aquarius that's right and then my last one, uh, I watched um, a movie you and I talked about on the podcast um, that was kind of a, I think, a surprise non-Oscar nomination, non-Oscar nomination um, for best documentary, The Rescue. Right. Uh, yes. I watched. I watched The Rescue, uh, <laughs> and uh, man, this is just a hell of a story. I, I feel like I remember when this happened, when these boys and their like soccer coach in Thailand were trapped in this cave, but I like, I remember when it happened. I remember that they got out, but I, I didn't, I don't think I realized how, 
um, how dire it was, how far from everyone into the cave they were, how close all of them came to being to dying, um, and how unlikely the way in which they were saved is. Hmm. Um, so it's like, it's definitely, it's, you know, it's a national geographic documentary. It's not like high art, but it's a really gripping story, but it did get me thinking about things. Okay. About, and I, cause I know Ron Howard has a, like a narrative, like fictionalized move version of this story coming out. I think, I think it's supposed to come out this year. Hmm. And I wonder how it'll be handled because there's, there's a way you could look at the rescue and say that it's falling into the white savior narrative because so much of it is about the like middle-aged British dudes who cave dive recreationally. Hmm. And because of that, are better suited than the Thai Navy SEALs who are training underwater, but underwater in the ocean and stuff like, like, sure. This, so this like lifelong hobby of these guys ends up making them the, like the perfect guys to, um, to undertake this, this rescue mission. So like on the one hand, it's like, yes, this could be seen as following the white savior tropes, but on the other hand, like these white dudes did like play a huge role in saving these um, these kids. So I, st- I, I guess I started thinking about like, well, I guess this isn't, again, this is, I like the movie. I'm not setting these things out as problems, just like things that it made me think of. I wonder if Ron Howard's movie will tell the same story because what sure. I realize is like, I don't think the movie is being disingenuous about the huge role that these dude, mostly Brits, but also like some New Zealanders and some other people, um, the huge role these dudes played, but also I realized like okay, but the, this movie doesn't spend much time. Like the the kids themselves in the movie are right. the object; they're not characters. They're not interviewed after the fact, um, and maybe the parents didn't want that. Who knows? Um, and you know, there are plenty of other things done with the not just Thai, the Thai military, but also American military, Chinese military that were um, that were helping out. Um, and I do wonder if I feel like there's more to this story to be told. You could make you could make a companion piece of this movie that's just about not what was it like trying to figure out how to rest these kids, but what was it like being a 13-year-old boy trapped with your friends for three yeah. fucking weeks in the dark with no food until day 10, um, which is the first time the contact was made after 10 days. Um yeah, that moment in the movie. There are plenty of parts of the rescue that brought a tear sure. to my eye. But uh, I guess it's the mark of a well-told story when you know what happened and you're still surprised. Yeah, like uh, the the movie does such a good job of get, did such a good job of getting me into the mindset of these men who, by day ten, ha- were certain that they were looking to salvage bodies out of the yeah out of the cave. So when 10 days in, they surface and they're all 13 people are alive. Like even I was like, holy shit, I can't believe it. Even though I know what happened, <laughs> yeah, but I yeah. was, I was stunned. It's, it's a very well-made documentary. It got me thinking about some things about 
maybe because I watched that movie Prism, I was just thinking about the responsibility of sure. telling uh, and replicating stories. Um, there's also a lot of reenactments in the rescue that are all okay. very well done. Um, I would definitely recommend it's a it's a good uh, a, a good story. I would say it's definitely a movie if you're like I don't know if you've got parents in town or something like sure. the, the rescue is an inspiring, uh, inspiring story. Uh, you should sounds have like one more. Good, uh, yeah. Sounds like a good companion film for uh, touching the void. I feel like oh, uh, yeah, you could watch yeah. the two of them in the same day and feel pretty good. Yeah. Um, okay. So I finally, after two months uh, caught up with Spider-Man, no way home. Um, Jen and I went to go see it today actually. And uh you know, I, I'm Marvel has caught my attention again after, you know, the whole infinity war, uh, end game thing. Part of me is like, well, this feels like a pretty natural end point for me. I think I'm going to duck out, but I've, at this point I've watched, like, I, I've, I think I've seen everything that Marvel's put out, but some stuff I've seen out of curiosity, Frankly, some stuff I've seen out of boredom um, and some stuff I've seen so that I can talk about it with students, you know, um, and not everything is hitting for me, but having now watched like some of the Disney plus shows, which I'll talk about on the next uh, TV journal, which only the patrons will hear about, but um, you could be a patron too at patreon.com slash battleship pretension. And that you Tyler, I mean the list. Well, it could be me as well, but I already know what happened. Um, <laughs> so when you see the, th you, you can see the through line developing, like what the next, not necessarily the next big bad, although that's kind of becoming clear as well. But I remember thinking like, well, what's the, what is the, after the, this cosmic infinity war thing, where can you go that could seem as daunting? And it's like, oh, dealing with time, uh, time travel and alternate timelines and the multiverse. That's where you can go. And so I watched Loki and now I've watched this. And then there's going to be a Doctor Strange movie called The Multiverse of, of Madness. Um, and this one, I think, really delves into that. And you can see like, OK, that's where we're going. And now they have my attention because that's an interesting place to go, especially if they do it the way this film did. This is not a perfect movie. I think it's actually a little bit clunky for the first probably 20, 25 minutes, um, sort of setting some things up. But once it gets going, and frankly, the movie's been out for two months, I'm comfortable speaking in spoilers. Uh, David, do you care at all? Well, I haven't seen the movie, but no, I don't care. I didn't think so. So the idea is that um, uh, Peter Parker and Doctor Strange accidentally cause like a rift in in the multiverse which draws several villains from previous spider-man franchises into this movie so you have alfred molina as doc ock you have willem dafoe as green goblin uh and and then from the 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 andrew garfield films as well you have jamie fox as electro uh and then you also and then of course andrew garfield shows up and Tobey Maguire shows up as other Peter Parkers. And so some of this stuff, you know, from the trailer, some of this stuff you kind of guess is going to happen because it feels like it, it should happen. But 
my big concern was that was that all of that was going to be a novel treated as a novelty and that it'll be like and that the film would essentially just be saying like holy shit can you like can you believe that we got like the other spider-man isn't this awesome but what i'll say is that i think this film does nostalgia right there are so many movies that are trying to exploit nostalgia and you can feel that that's what they're doing this is a movie that i think allows these characters from other things rather than just have them show up so that we can all say hey it actually gives them something to do. It gives them something to feel. It gives them something to process so that they do develop as care as full fledged characters. Um, Andrew Garfield's character has a bit of an arc as does Toby Maguire's and they contribute to Tom Holland's arc. And that's, that's pretty notable because the film didn't have to do that to do well financially but it has to do that if they're really committed to who spider-man is as a character both in this universe and in the larger cultural mindset um and it got me thinking about the role of nostalgia in general and how uh in movies like it can it can be a very powerful thing to acknowledge that a certain movie or a certain character was so important to someone at a certain, at a certain point in their life. Um, and it makes me angry about other movies that don't do that, that simply use it as a way to get some cheap applause or a cheap surprise. Instead, you know, it's a film. I know this, I'm probably overstating here. The idea that like, yes. Okay. The Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man movies like really kicked off like what superhero movies could be. Yes, there were there's X-Men, there's Blade, there's Batman, there's Batman, but like it was the it was that Spider-Man movie from 2002 that really got people thinking like okay, we can really do kind of whatever. So sort of doing a throwback to that is fun, but also the recogni- recognition of who Spider-Man was in the cultural mindset like it came out in 2002 and we have a hero in New York committed to not killing people who want to kill him and committing to responsibility. That's pretty culturally important to a lot of people at that time. And this feels like a film that understands that weight and, and is willing to grapple with that weight while still telling a compelling story. And uh, I was really, um, I was very, I was hoping it would be that. And then I was, and yet I was still pleasantly surprised that it was that as, to the extent that it was. So, um, like I said, it's not necessarily a perfect film. There are a couple things here and there, um, that, that bother me from a, a plotting standpoint, but, but, you know, the main attraction of what this movie is, which is bringing all these characters from the world of Spider-Man together, um, it, it really does some amazing stuff and it has a tremendous power. So this film along with others, but like this film really has, has gotten me, uh, has renewed my interest in where Marvel is going to go and how it's going to go there. Mm-hmm.